This is an ABC podcast. What will get me out of the bed in the morning? How do I even define myself? Well, I suppose I could fill my days with gardening, knitting, but it wouldn't have the same sense of fulfilment. As you start to think deeply about your meaning and purpose in retired life, you can then start to hatch your own answer to that question, who am I? Now, what I was going to do when I retired was astronomy. By unretiring, this whole generation is claiming back their worthiness of being accepted. I may have passed my best before date, but I haven't passed my years by date. We are reclaiming our ability to do something meaningful with our lives. Hello. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, the second half of our two-parter about finding new purpose and working in retirement. Today, the meaningful unretirement, how to find new meaning in your unretirement years, and how doing this can actually make you live longer. First, I want you to meet Debbie. I'm Professor Debbie Huskin-Leventhal from Macquarie University, where I teach corporate social responsibility, sustainability, purpose and impact. And she's also an author of a new book called Make It Meaningful, How to Find Purpose in Life and Work. And it's half a memoir about my personal story growing up in a cult and half a guidebook on how to find meaningfulness in life and work. Debbie, what's the difference, do you think, between a life full of meaning and one that's not? I think it requires a deliberated search, understanding that life is a journey that goes beyond our tasks and what we need to do every day, that goes beyond work and even family duties, to search for something that goes beyond that. And and for me and the way that I realized my meaningfulness and the way I try to impart that in the book is to do that through impact and service and purpose. And it's not an easy journey. You have to really look very deeply inside yourself and to understand what drives you and what you can do to help others. And that sometimes takes some painful turns in your journey because you never know when you start looking for impact and purpose whose life you're going to affect and how they're going to affect your life in return. Let's lay some groundwork. Can you explain the critical dimensions of meaningfulness in life as summarised by Frank Martella and Michael Steger? Sure. Um, so there are a few aspects of, uh, of that. And there is the way that we connect to others, our relationships. But what they're also talking about, which really hit a chord with me, was a sense of purpose. And they say, you know, to find meaningfulness in life and at work, you need to have a sense of purpose. And when you have, you know, you retire, you sometimes feel like you lost your work. You lost a sense of purpose in the sense that there is no reason for you to get up in the morning. And that's substantial. I'm not taking away from that. But purpose is more than giving you a reason to get up in the morning. It's actually the way that you go to sleep at night, feeling that you've done something of significance that day. So it's not just about 
why you do what you do, but also how you get to assess that, looking at it in retrospect. But for me, of all the things they talked about, that was the one thing that really hit a chord. Before we go to your personal story, you spend a bit of time in your book really looking at the story of psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl. Can you tell me about that distinction between everyday meaning and ultimate meaning? Viktor Frankl is such an inspiration to so many people. You can't even consider, you know, talking about meaningfulness without talking about Viktor Frankl. He came out from Auschwitz seeing the worst of humanity, seeing the worst in in the Nazis, but also in the people in the camp trying to survive sometimes at the cost of others. And he frankly says the best of us did not survive because you really had to behave in a way that created some ways for you to survive. And sometimes it was not always ethical or moral. And it really turned this dark page in human history into a way of learning how to live a more meaningful life. And he wrote this whole book. And there is one thing that really stayed with me. Is He said, you know, I was walking through the camp. I had no shoes. I was cold. I was hungry. And I was really angry that the Nazis turned me into this human being that only focuses on the most substantial needs in life. Like I had no spirituality, no morality. It was all about my shoes and my food. And and then he had a vision. And in his vision, he was talking to a whole class of students, sharing his experiences and imparting meaning into that. He was able to do this future visioning to elevate himself out of these horrendous circumstances and reality into something that really made him feel like he's a worthwhile human being. Everyday meaning is the way that we impart meaning to our everyday task, where ultimate meaning is the overarching goal that we have in our life. And not everyone can find an ultimate meaning, but sometimes starting with the everyday meaning is a good way, a good layway to find the ultimate meaning. He recommended three different kinds of experience in that pursuit of meaning. Can you take me through them? Yes, absolutely. One of them is quite interesting for me as a writer because it's about doing creative tasks and finding creativity in what you do in life. And, you know, for me, writing a book was such a meaningful way (laughs) of finding meaning that I was just thinking about it now that the book came out. It's like people who write books on how to get rich, which makes them rich. (laughs) For me, writing a book about meaningfulness really helped me impart meaning in my life. But the other thing that he's talking about is really finding purpose in creating this life of service and helping others. And he did that through what he called logotherapy, a therapy that's based on the ability to find meaning and the way he served others. You know, even before the Holocaust, when he was uh, the director of the prevention of suicide department in the hospital, to what he did afterwards, living a life of, of service and trying to make a difference in other people's lives is one of the way that he suggests finding meaningfulness in, in life. Well, my full name is Val McPhil, but I would like people to call me just Val Phil. 
I am 94 now. I have just turned 94. So I was born in 1929 and my husband was also born in 1929. He died in 2013 after being diagnosed with dementia in 2006. But I became involved in dementia. But originally I started off life as a school teacher. <laughs> and then I went to London and studied and became a statistician. So that's a long way from becoming a carer. My husband retired in 1984. I semi-retired at that stage. So, you know, when I became a carer and I had to think about what life was going to be like, I realised that I had to start something new. And that's when I became a dementia advocate, started studying dementia, and I've been studying it off and on probably since then. You know, teaching and look, just looking at figures is not quite the same as doing something which will help others. One of my sons said at my 90th birthday gathering that my mother has a sense of social justice. And I think what that means to me is that I think everybody deserves to know about dementia. Everybody needs the care that's required if they or their partner have dementia. I think we're all in the same boat when it comes to health. Well, I suppose I could fill my days with gardening. Uh, I could fill my days with knitting. But it wouldn't have the same sense of fulfilment. There's much more personal, probably, satisfaction out of doing what I'm doing now because I still remember. It's my connection to my husband still. I'm prone to say, and some people laugh at me, but it's true. I may have passed my best before date, but I haven't passed my years by date. I still have some role to fill. Debbie, I love the car analogy in terms of passion is like the fuel in the car, purpose is the vehicle's direction, and then you mentioned the seven enablers that can make that car more efficient, like choice. Is there another favourite one that you have that you find particularly powerful? One of the things that I really love discovering when I wrote the book was the meaning of the word authenticity, which meant worthy of acceptance. And for me, this is such a meaningful way of thinking about authenticity, because oftentimes we think about, you know, being authentic, being your real self, bringing your whole self to work and to your meaningful relationships, but to feel worthy of acceptance in life, in work, and in retirement is pretty big. And if we could go back to this unretirement, I think it's people claiming that they're worthy of acceptance. Because when we tell people you need to retire, we tell them you are not worthy of your job anymore. You can't perform it. You are too old for us. Please just step aside and let younger people do that work. By unretiring, this whole generation is claiming back their worthiness of being accepted. No one can tell you that you are no longer worthy of working, of delivering your talents and skills. We are reclaiming our ability to do something meaningful with our lives. I love that so much, Debbie. I got shivers. <laughs> Debbie, you mentioned a cult earlier on. We can't leave that hanging. Can you talk us through your own experience of finding meaning when you left Kabbalah? I left the Kabbalah Centre when I was 18 and a half. 
after being there for nearly 14 years. We've joined because of my mother's search for meaning when my brother died at the age of 10 from cancer. And we've spent 14 years there. And it's really interesting looking at it now, writing the book. I realized that cults are never all bad. If they were, people wouldn't have joined them. There was a lot of togetherness and positive positive way of establishing our life and giving meaning to that. So coming out of a Kabbalah center, because I've seen the negative aspects of it, because I've seen some unethical behavior, because I've seen the consequences of living a life there. And it's interesting because one of the strongest reactions I get from the book is people who lost their religion. And they had the same sense of losing the ground I'm walking on. You wake up in the morning, you know what to think, what to pray, what to do, what to believe in. And when you decide to leave all of that behind, you have to go through a deep meaning search, which is what I had to go through at the age of 18 and a half. And it's not an easy journey. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was very scary. And my biggest fear was that I'm going to live a meaningless life, that my life will not matter at all, that whatever I'm going to do is just going to be work and, you know, maybe fun, but I will not have a sense of meaning in life. And so I went through a very deep meaning search of six months and I started putting together my own set of values, um, things around compassion, compassion for humans, compassion for animals. And that was, that was a scary search, but I feel so privileged that I could dedicate six months of my life to thinking about what I believe in and what I want to become as a human being. Will you permit me a very, very long bow? But for some people, when they leave their careers, their jobs, they feel that sense of the scariness that you felt where their ground is taken away from them. They feel like everything has dropped away and their, their life, because they're not going to work surrounded by the same work friends, loses meaning. What would you say about the things that you learned that could be helpful for people with their identity wrapped around work? Absolutely. And I remember that from my own mother, um, after leaving the Kabbalah Center, she joined a law firm and she worked there as an accountant for 20 years. And it was very scary for her to step out. She had to because she had early set dementia, so she had to stop working. And she said, what am I going to do? What will get me out of the bed in the morning? How do I even define myself? We live in a world where you ask people, who are you? Who are you, Lisa? What do you do? And usually what <laughs> the way that we introduce ourselves, think about, you know, a cocktail party, you go, you meet people, say, tell me about yourself. Say, oh, I'm Debbie, I'm a professor. I'm Lisa and I do a podcast on ABC. I'm, you know, we always define ourselves, our identity with our job. So losing that could imply for many people the fear of losing our identity. And that is just as scary. That is just the same sense of a beast that, you know, what am I going to walk on? What am I going to do with my life? I, I see that there are many 
happy retirees that found a renewed sense of purpose in their retirement, but they had to prepare for that, they had to plan for that, and they had to apply the same kind of ideas that I talk about finding meaningfulness at work to finding meaningfulness in retirement. And it's really interesting because some studies show that people who have a positive attitudes toward retirement actually live seven and a half years longer than people who are like, oh, I'm getting old, I'm going to retire, my life is going to be meaningless, and I'm just going to be old and achy. For those people then trying to discover that place where they feel worthy, what other things have you learned in your journey of making meaning that you think would be helpful to unlock that for people who may not have ever had the permission to look before? Yeah. And and look, work is one way of doing it, but there are many other ways in which we can find meaning. And I think especially in older age, it's very important to look into these options. So one of them is creating meaningful relationship with others. Just because you retire and you lost your colleagues doesn't mean that you cannot reestablish or establish a lot of meaningful relationships with others. You know, I mentioned my mother because it's such a close example, but after retiring, she created this group of people and they they just keep going to each other houses, each other's houses and hosting each other for breakfast and going over overseas together. And it's a great way for you to reestablish your meaningful relationships. The other thing is my other aspect of research in the last 25 years is volunteering. So even if you can't work for any reasons you don't want to work, you can always apply your talent to your passion and impact by volunteering to something that you care about. So if you were, for example, an accountant or a lawyer and you care very deeply about human rights or animal welfare, there are ample opportunities for you to apply this knowledge and this talent and provide pro bono service to organizations whose causes you align with. And having studied volunteering in older age, I could tell you that it almost cheats death. There are so many benefits, health benefits, psychological benefits, and even, you know, living longer because you volunteer, you connect with others, you connect with causes that you care deeply about. And I found that so many people say that volunteering makes life more meaningful uh, for them. So these are, you know, good ways of doing it. But the third way is finding new hobbies and passion that fills your life. And let me give you the example of my father-in-law, Monty Leventhal, OAM, (laughs) who um, dedicated his retirement years to um, studying astronomy and mapping the sun activity. Hello. Okay, I'm ready. So uh, my name is Monty Leventhal. I'm now 89. I worked in the printing industry. Well, I knew when I when I was going to retire, and that was going to be at, at 65 now, what I was going to do when I retired was 
astronomy. I always look, always looked up at the sky and looked at the stars. When I was a young, very young boy during the Second World War, London was in darkness because it was being bombed by the Germans. And so when you looked at the sky before the aeroplanes started dropping bombs on you, the night sky was absolutely beautiful because no lights were on in London. When the night sky here was ruined for me by the floodlights from a sports ground, the only thing I could look at was the sun during the day. So when you look at the sun, you're looking at a star that you see actual activity on. It's so exciting to record these things. I hand draw them and uh, make a special diagram. I took my small telescope every second and fourth Sunday to the Sydney Observatory and I put my telescope on their front lawn so anybody that came past could look at the sun and people were queuing to look at the sun because people just don't normally normally do that sort of thing and that was very successful I did that for 28 years I think well receiving the AM was an amazing thing for me the reason I got it was because of my volunteer work at the city observatory and my contribution to science that's what OAM was for I was very very honored and still am and made it all worthwhile Hello, my name is John Glass. I'm a retirement coach. I retired from full-time work nine years ago, and at first I was quite scared by time, because after all, you've got seven days a week that you can exploit. Is time my friend or my enemy? Can I use it productively, or am I going to wake up frightened at six o'clock in the morning that there's another 18 hours ahead and I don't know what to do? And so the way I approached it was to start to fill my life with activities. A fundamental question with my clients that flows from them ultimately finding their meaning in retired life is an answer to the big, big question, who am I? Who am I is a question that's relatively easy to answer when you work because it's defined, let's say, by your business card or uniform. As you start to think deeply about your meaning and purpose in retired life, you can then start to hatch your own answer to that question, who am I? And traditionally, people might take the three G approach, as it's called, to retirement, which is golf, gardening and grandparenting, but that's not for everyone. I use the metaphor of crossing the bridge. In crossing the bridge from a work life to some sort of retired life, there are going to be some things that you leave behind on the other side and some you take with you. But then there's the things you miss and want to replace. And this is a very long list. Let me give you some highlights. First is a social network. Some will be your friends, but in particular, there'll be people across the age spectrum. And I think that's important to carry as a thought into retired life. Another thing that happens at work is from time to time, when you've done a particularly amazing thing, your boss comes to you and says, well done. You get that validation. Then there's structure and routine. That's an obvious one. But, you know, take that away and you can feel a little bit lost. So replacing that routine and structure can be quite important. And that all leads to the biggie, which is meaning or purpose, because you certainly had a meaning or purpose. You knew why you went to work each day. 
that was clear. And so what is your meaning? What is your purpose going to be in retired life? The Japanese have a wonderful expression for this, which I love. It's called ikigai, and it sums it up beautifully, the reason to get out of bed in the morning. Not something you thought about much on Monday at six o'clock as you got out of bed and got ready for work, but in retired life, yes, um, you've got all that freedom. Uh, what is your reason to get out of bed? What is your meaning? I'm hearing that meaning doesn't have an expiry date and in fact it evolves with you. Absolutely, absolutely. And our whole life is a journey. It doesn't stop. You don't get to find your meaning between the age of 20 and 24 and after that, that's it. You have your whole life to find meaning and to find new ways of making yourself impactful and of service to others. Thank you, Debbie. A pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to my guests and to sound engineer Brendan O'Neill and to producer Zoe Ferguson, who loves working with me so much she would never, ever retire. This working life is made on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wiradjuri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. And until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.